Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is writer Megan O'Rourke, author of The Invisible Kingdom, which explores her hunt for a diagnosis. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetIns.com slash sample-policy. Spot Pet Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. One reason I wrote the book is that the lack of recognition is such a powerful harm (laughs) done to patients and I think until you've gone through an experience like this it's really hard to convey why that is but basically it comes down to having the dignity of your suffering possessing some kind of meaning I think right and we're all social creatures right we don't actually get sick totally alone it feels lonely But one reason that my illness was doubly hard was that I had the loneliness of physical symptoms and then I had the additional loneliness of never having them recognized or validated, which made it so much harder. Writer, journalist, and poet Megan O'Rourke, a former editor at The New Yorker and the current editor of The Yale Review, has written stunningly about many topics in our culture. But her latest book, The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness, is a memoir of her own suffering as she navigates the medical world in search of a diagnosis. Her journey to understand what is wrong with her, to even be seen and recognized as a sick person, was particularly complex because she has a web of autoimmune diseases, which is not that uncommon, actually, particularly for younger women. In her book, she explores the complexity of illness and what it means to look fine, vital even, and yet feel like you're failing inside, and how quick we are to dismiss suffering we cannot see, particularly when it's the suffering of women. Okay, let's get to our conversation. How are you feeling? Let's start there. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm doing okay. Yeah, I am... say to a friend of mine who was also chronically ill and also mostly functional like me, you know, I was like, I've got my hacks, right? That's what I sort of live on. My little coping mechanisms that get me by. Actually, we took a vacation last week, which means that I'm feeling a little less well than usual because anytime I have to go out of my little set of routines and foods and everything, I do end up feeling a little sicker. Mm. Yeah. And you have kids. And I have kids and they both had croup on our vacation. So it was was family time, as a friend of mine put it, (laughs) not vacation. (laughs) Or yeah, they're trips, not vacations. We have like, I think every, every family does this. We're always have at least one bag in our hands as we head to the airport because someone is, someone has started puking the night before, (laughs) or it's just, it's like, vacation. Yes. Let's go be sick in a hotel. That's exactly what happened to us. Yes. Yeah. 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 They got sick when we arrived. Yeah. Yeah. No, my youngest was coughing this morning and I was like, great, let's clear this out just in time for me to get sick before we get on a plane. Anyway. All right. Well, I'm glad you're feeling well and thank you for your book. I feel like it's, you know, so many beautiful moments throughout you're such a beautiful writer so congratulations and yeah and it's nice I you know I 
the invisibility, as you say, sort of the invisible kingdom and the invisibility of so many of these chronic diseases, which typically impact a lot more women than men. It's this, all these layers of compounding issues as you delineate, you know, the, the way that it has been diagrammed in your body is, you know, a fascinating cultural, I mean, I know it's not fascinating because it's your body, but it is quite meta. It is. And it, you know, I felt like there were moments when I was sick where I was fascinated, right? Not in a like happy way, but as you're saying, like there are all these reasons we're in the situation we're in, which are not immediately evident. And that's quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And just this fact, you know, that you talk a lot about, you don't mind if I read to you early on in the book, you talk about going to see one of your, just going to see a doctor and feeling dismissed And you write, her office was busy and she had patronized me and rushed me out the door. I felt more acutely alone than ever. I had no ally. Worse, the encounter left me with a rusty taste in my mouth, a sense that perhaps I didn't deserve an ally. For this is the strange thing about a vulnerability that remains unseen by others, an illness that is unacknowledged by society. It is the sick person whose worldview warps and the wounded one who absorbs the idea that the most indelible aspect of her present condition is in fact a defect, a distortion of her own making. Oof. But this is the this is the experience, right? That so many feel, you know, and I frequently say my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse, I grew up filing charts in the medical office, I served trays in the hospital cafeteria. I am intimately aware, I mean, I'm, I'm not in healthcare, but of how that system works. And I have a lot of respect and reverence for it, but it's very broken. And as someone who has tried everything in your pursuit of feeling better and in your pursuit of a diagnosis, really, how would you remake a patient-centered world? What would that have looked like? Mm, such a good question. And you know, by the way, I hope it does come through in the book that I too have reverence and a lot of respect for the medical system and certainly for the individual professionals within it who are trying really hard despite a broken system to deliver care. But the system's broken. Yeah. So, and it's really good at acute care. It's really set up for crisis care, right? And it's not set up for chronic illness care and in particular chronic chronic illness care for people whose illnesses roam the body and maybe are still poorly understood like mine really are even though I have diagnoses I, I have these diagnoses that kind of cluster at the edge of knowledge in a lot of ways so I think the first thing I would do when we're talking about these complex systemic illnesses like autoimmune disease or myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, and now, of course, long COVID, is create coordinated care, right? I think the first thing is just alleviating the burden of having to schlep from doctor to doctor to doctor, but also finding ways for those doctors to have time to spend with you. And this is the big financial piece that I have no answer for, right? Which is how do we finance a system where doctors can really spend time with patients who have these complicated illnesses that need a lot of investigation really, right? There's a lot of listening a doctor has to do to clues and then collaborating. There's a center in Pennsylvania called the Autoimmunity Institute that I write about briefly in the book. And what appeals to me about them is that they have this real-time huddle hall, they call it, where the doctors get together and talk in real time about patients um, with really complicated autoimmune diseases. And they told me that once a week, they have these kind of mystery conferences where they'll talk about someone whose case they can't quite figure out. And maybe that person's main contact is a neurologist, but the neurologist will be talking and the rheumatologist in the room will suddenly have an insight like, well, have you ever read this study? And there's so many people who need that kind of care, right? Where there's a kind of intellectual curiosity on the part of their doctors and those doctors have the time to to pursue it. Yeah. It's like house, you know, so many of the fantasies that we're sold about (laughs) how medicine works come from TV fantasy, but it's, it's a good idea, right? Like, as you said, those are the moments of, and I think you see this in teaching hospitals sometimes where you have these clusters of residents who are spitballing 
And I remember my dad, my dad grew up in South Africa and he did his residency at the Mayo Clinic and they were discussing a patient and I, hopefully I'm not butchering these facts, but they were discussing a patient and essentially, and my dad was listening and they couldn't figure out what was happening in this systemically in this patient. And my dad was like, well, did his flight, where, where did his, where did his flight connect? He had stepped off a plane in Africa. He had malaria, but because my dad had, is <laughs> from Africa, you know, grew up in Africa, he was able to figure out what was going on just in that in that quorum based approach. But this the wisdom of the crowd and that sort of reflective care and to feel, I think, you know, as a patient to know that you're not yelling into a vacuum, but that there's actually a desire to understand you. I mean, that seemed to be such a through line, that very human need of do I matter? Is anyone seeing me? Can anyone reflect my reality? Can anyone tell me that they believe me, even though I don't look sick? That feels so sort of essential and primal in your book. That's a quality that, as you mentioned, like people don't have time. They don't have the answers. It's so hard to say, I don't know, right? But I will figure it out. Yeah. I I think that medicine doesn't train doctors to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Right. And to deal with uncertainty. It's interesting. I was talking to a doctor who's just written a piece about how the pandemic has brought that kind of vulnerability into healthcare in a really visible way, right? Because doctors also got COVID and were as uncertain as all of us about what it really was, right? But yeah, it's remarkable how powerful. And I think one reason I wrote the book is that the lack of recognition is such a powerful harm (laughs) done to patients. And I think until you've gone through an experience like this, it's really hard to convey why that is. But basically it comes down to having the dignity of your suffering, possessing some kind of meaning, I think, right? And we're all social creatures, right? We don't actually get sick totally alone. It feels lonely. But one reason that my illness was doubly hard was that I had the loneliness of physical symptoms. And then I had the additional loneliness of never having them recognized or validated, which made it so much harder, right? I think if you feel that other people see your suffering and understand at least some aspect of it, the fact of it, you, you can kind of carry on, right? But to be robbed even of the dignity of your suffering is really, it's incredibly um, demoralizing. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? But more often, to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen Maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking. And it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, 
No endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash P-T-T. How long did it take to arrive at the, and is your Lyme diagnosis, that it feels definitive in the book, but is that definitive or at least a factor? It feels, it's so hard to know with Lyme disease. It's very, we could do two hours, at least just the complexity of Lyme disease testing. So I try to, I really do try to capture this in the book. So I can say, read the book, (laughs) get into the uncertainties and you'll learn about the testing there. But for those who are listening, but as far as I can tell, I pretty clearly had an undiagnosed tick-borne illness. I did later, my Lyme test was itself a little bit equivocal, but when I was treated for Lyme disease, I went from being bedridden and unable to almost write sentences because cognitively I was so impaired at that point to running and being almost my normal self cognitively again within like three weeks. So it's pretty clear that antibiotics for Lyme disease did something major to me. And I did later get a CDC positive test for another tick-borne infection, often you get two at once. But, you know, as I recount in the book, one of the things, I mean, it's astonishing that no one ever tested me for Lyme disease for many, many years. It took close to two decades to get answers. But one complexity was that I ended up having multiple different simultaneous conditions, one of them genetic, called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, another of them autoimmune, and another a form of a nervous system disorder called dysautonomia, in my case called POTS, where my heart races when I stand up. And they probably are all linked, actually, but it also meant that when I was being treated for thyroid disease, it helped a little bit, but not all my symptoms went away, right? And then when I was being treated for Lyme disease, it helped a lot, but then I still had these other symptoms because we didn't realize I had POTS, et cetera. So I always say, I think one framework we're missing right now when we think about medicine and illness, and particularly these kind of 21st century illnesses that I feel I'm talking about, is that they can be caused by successive hits to the immune system or an overlapping array of immunological and nervous system problems that medicine hasn't really foregrounded in medical education. And we don't really have a public narrative for. Right. And then sort of the factors of life emotionally and otherwise can often start, you know, there can be an inciting event that might be, you know, some sort of traumatic, you know, a death in the family or something else happens that sets you going in a stress response. And then suddenly you're swamped by an emergence of latent viruses. You know, I think we probably, I don't know this for a fact at all, but that I think, you know, as someone who's had strep throughout my life, I think I have latent strep. I have an inclination to get strep when I'm stressed. I'm sure that that could be completely off base, but it seems like it must be in my body ready to activate. And it seems like you described that sort of like you take a hit and then it's like the minute your defenses are shifted or down, something else emerges. And I think people can relate to that, like that feeling of being subsumed by wave after wave in a way that's, oh, exhausting. Like really my heart went out to you as I was (laughs) reading about (laughs) this experience and being like the, the gender part of it too, right? The fact that women are are perceived as hypochondriacs, are the, the diseases that affect us for so long were not considered to be real. Now they are real. Oh my God, right? I mean, we could talk about this for hours too, but absolutely. I think one of the things that's so wild was realizing that what I was going through was not singular, that so many people, many of them women, were going through the same thing. And that because so many of us get autoimmune diseases when we're relatively young, and in fact, that age is getting younger and the average age of onset is is getting younger and younger. I think medicine tends to dismiss young women when they come in. And, you know, I talk in my book about the legacy of hysteria, and there's this really complicated history there, but this 19th century rise of diagnosing 
hysteria in female patients who had vague symptoms like fatigue and brain fog and abdominal pain, you know, I try to suggest that that's really still with us that, you know, when Freud came along and said, by the way, after doctors couldn't fix those patients, they first thought they had biological illness. And then as soon as they couldn't fix them, the male doctors of the time, they decided, oh, it must be in their heads. Because it's not real. I, yeah. If it's real, I would be able to fix it, right? Totally. Um, you can sort of read between the lines. I mean, that's not the formal history, but it's pretty clear when you read the the texts of the time, which I did. And then Freud comes along and is like, yeah, it's actually repressed sexuality or it's, you know, the more someone doesn't speak a symptom, the more it's likely that it's the sign of a trauma they can't speak. And so I think women are in this incredible catch 22 now where the more you go to the doctor and insist this is real, the more your insistence is seen as a sign of something psychosomatic, your own resistance to acknowledging something mental is going on. So I found it was this incredible kind of philosophical conundrum, right? The more I would use my language to try to assert the reality of my disease, almost the more I could see that reality becoming suspect in some doctors. Yeah. And it's so interesting too, like our, the instinct culturally to disparage something that the, the emotional and mental components of something, which are also very real and measurable. You know, you mentioned Ted Kapchuk. You wrote about his research at Harvard into placebo and acupuncture. And it was, I think you talked about his irritable bowel syndrome study and the discrepancy in the way that they were treated, one group brusquely, right? And the other group empathically and warmly. And the one that was treated with warmth, they didn't receive acupuncture, right? Or how did it go? Let me, <laughs> let me pull up the study because you know, the nature of my lingering effects, I would say, is that I, I just like to verify everything. But basically, yes. So I think they both had the same sham acupuncture. In yeah. fact, it wasn't, it wasn't known to be acupuncture that would help. Like it wasn't actually using acupuncture points. It was just right. uh, random acupuncture. Different. Yeah. And one group group was treated by a, a perfunctory researcher who didn't ask them any questions and was kind of even a little rude maybe. And the other was treated by a warm researcher who, you know, would ask them questions and say, I'm so sorry, you're suffering. And what was shocking was that the group treated by the empathetic researcher experienced more reduction of their symptoms than the group, group treated by the breast researcher. In fact, the really shocking part was that that reduction in symptoms was more significant than even the reduction in symptoms caused by the strongest medication we have for IBS. Right. And you, there's a similar study in diabetes, which you'd think, how does that respond to empathy? But there's just a ton of shocking studies that show how profoundly our biomarkers themselves, the little measurements of levels in our blood of various chemicals and substances change based just on how people talk to us. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1500 square foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product contents. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetlitten oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, 
vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. And isn't it interesting that it's our cultural instinct right now in the society that we live in to then say, oh, then that's really irrelevant or the placebo is irrelevant or that doesn't count when in fact it's like, wow, look at how powerful are the the power of relationship, the power of relating, the power of care and the power of feeling seen and validated. It's remarkably powerful. And yet- because it's really, it's really wild. It's wild. And actually, one of the doctors I currently see, I chose partly because at one point he said to me, it's possible that how I'm treating you is just a, the reason you're getting a benefit is just through placebo. He's like, but that's fine if it's through placebo. And I was like, right, exactly. Like, yeah. placebo is not, the only danger of placebo is if you're giving someone something damaging to their body. And in fact, it's something else. And in fact, what I would say about the study is it should tell us we can do a lot with something that's completely not damaging, which is just our words, right? You don't have to yeah. give um, other stuff. Yeah. yeah. I think it's so interesting. And I hope that we start to reframe the power of placebo, which is a very difficult standard to beat in studies, and that we start to actually explore what the, what the factors are that drive that rather than just saying yeah. than the dismissal that it so typically receives. It's really, I think it's one of the most fascinating cultural yeah. quandaries within health. And, and I loved your book because just reading about the various protocols that you pursued in the name of health and the spectrum, which I think is right. You know, I think that any sort of quote unquote side of medicine that would reject, you know, I think it's wrong to reject Eastern medicine. It's wrong to reject Western medicine. The two work so much more powerfully together. But I loved your explanation, if you don't mind if I read again, where you write, the discourse of natural medicine, of alternative and integrative medicine, of wellness culture draws on our nostalgia for an imagined past. It is a discourse not only of optimization, but of regret though this aspect is rarely acknowledged. Regret that we cannot undo what we have done to the polluted world, that we cannot have the best of science without having the worst of it, that we live atomized, exhausted, late capitalist lives, running from here to there, eyes on our phone. The natural Mm -hmm. approach appeals because it trades on notions of purity as a way of restoring health. It promises to return us to a time when our bodies were untainted by modernity, technology, and pollution, a path to a prelapsarian physical self, capable of almost anything, including self-healing, which is such, it's beautiful. That's a beautiful sentiment. And it's also so complicated, you know, to, to espouse any view in its entirety and reject, you know, we need a much more democratic approach to health and a much more like, let's see what works and then embrace it. Yeah. I think especially with these the category I'm trying to really talk about here, which are these diseases that are driven by immune mediation, because the wild thing about our immune system, I mean, and all these other systems too, but it's how much, you know, it's a basically a reactive system, right? It reacts to the environment. It reacts to other things. It reacts to your nervous system. It reacts to stress. It goes up and down according to stressors in your life. And so it's also highly personal, right? Your immune system is a record of your life, your encounters with pathogens, with chemicals, with stress. And so we do need, I think, going back to your great question about redesigning healthcare, 
you know, I'd really love to see an evidence-based medicine that takes the best of Western medicine, the best of these other modalities, and is really committed to the complicated and hard work of helping people make lifestyle modifications. Because one of the things that I found, and a lot of the people I interviewed for my book found, was that they had to make some modifications to their life to get somewhat better from these chronic illnesses. And by the way, better means kind of living with them better, right? And often, you know, there's things like food sensitivities because of food sensitivity is immune-based in nature, right? So if your immune yeah. system is having all these problems, you often end up with like, I can't eat eggs randomly. Some researchers I talked to who are working on long COVID said a feature of a lot of long COVID patients is that they have food sensitivities that are new, that are triggered by the incredible immune response to the virus, they think. But it's a really underexplored area. And then even when we know a lot about it, it's going to resist a sort of one size fits all stamp, right? It's going to require medical care where you have to really talk to patients and I needed to learn to sleep better. Yeah. <laughs> so like I love to stay up late at night writing and I just can't do that anymore, right? So we really need that more holistic in the true sense of the word, kind of dimensional approach to our bodies because, you know, it's funny what you were saying before about the placebo. It's like the poet and me kept being like, right, of course, care matters. Of course, warmth matters. Of course, sleep matters. Right. But you're almost trained out of thinking that way as a 21st century citizen. Well, it's very materialist, you know, it's a very, it's, and I think we're, we're moving into a new era that can sort of imagine that there are other factors that we don't yet understand or don't have language for. We can't quite measure them yet, but I, confident we will be able to. And I think too, with women, you know, and certainly I think a lot of doctors are attuned to this, but the factors were more complex hormonally, but with autoimmune, you know, a lot of the doctors that I've talked to about this autoimmune epidemic in women, and again, it's not fully understood. And there are obviously a lot of external factors like we live in a patriarchy and all of these things as well, but also we are as we are attuned to accept immune modulation, you know, by virtue of pregnancy, right? Like we grow other yeah. beings in our bodies and our bodies know not to attack them. And so there's clearly, you know, enough, one of my best friends has MS and she feels her best when she's pregnant because the immune system is yeah. taken down. Yeah. But that feels so under under researched and not well understood in a way that you would hope resources would be funneled faster. It's really astonishing how little we understand about the hormonal piece of autoimmune disease. So what do we know? We know autoimmune diseases are rising in the West. Part of it through better diagnostics, right? We can diagnose them better. But part of it, according to pretty much every researcher I talked to, is clearly something environmental changing how our very delicate balance of you know, the immune system is working and leading it to more often attack our own bodies. But as you say, we know things, there are studies showing, you know, like, right, women with MS do a lot better in pregnancy. We know that certain key hormonal stages lead to more autoimmune disease, but it's still so, it's like the tip of the iceberg. And meanwhile, close to 50 million women or people, I should say, in America live with autoimmune disease. About 80% of them are, yeah. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started. So it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. 
Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets, they also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select Podcast in the survey and select My Show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. I don't know about, you know, endocrine-disrupting chemicals and their impact on autoimmunity specifically. But there's also, you know, it's like, as you mentioned, this, the environmental toxins that have been unleashed in our environment, and we still don't understand. I mean, there are terrifying and fascinating studies. You know, Mike Skinner, University of Washington, Bruce Blumberg writes about obesogenic chemicals, DDT, and what they see show up in in mice in future generations in terms of turning on obesity genes. We know that there are dementogens, and I have to imagine that there's will be breakthroughs in understanding how environmental chemicals are um, igniting. And it just feels obvious, I guess. But I think no, everyone doesn't know how to contain it and or right. it's very scary, obviously. Well, and there's not a lot of money to study it, right? Because right. it doesn't benefit anyone. But the the journalist Donna Jackson Nakazawa, who's a really good book about autoimmune disease, uses the term autogenic chemicals is a lot of what her book is about. And they have found a couple, they have certainly isolated a few compounds, because the other challenge is how you isolate one to show that that compound triggers autoimmune disease, as opposed to the 400 others that are in our breast milk and body, you know, so sad. But you know, when they've been able to isolate them, they're seeing tons of autogenic effects. I think if we think about the revolution and understanding carcinogenic chemicals, we're still a little bit behind the curve and recognizing a huge advent of autogenic chemicals. And even, you know, with the, with the obesogenic ones with mice, it's typically shows up in, I think the second generation or third generation. So it's a lot of these impacts are from probably the fifties, probably the sixties. It's very complex but yeah. all the more reason to acknowledge it as real. And so we can we can end the ethical loneliness. I loved that phrase, that Jill Stauffer phrase, which is the injustice of not being heard for all these women. And then instead of pre- pretending like it doesn't exist, can yeah. we not turn into it and find some system, you know, mm-hmm. the, the quarterbacking of healthcare and the coalescing of records and... It's funny, you know, there's so much there's so much um unhappiness with Google, right? And this idea that people are trying yeah. to decipher medical studies and research. And yet at the same time, it's like culturally we're missing that connective tissue that yeah. translates research into terms that plebes can understand and people have to advocate for themselves because you cannot find that within the system. And that has to change, I think, for also for medicine and science to reclaim that sole authority space, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it goes back to the need for centers for the care of these kinds of diseases. Because one thing I've heard over and over from people I interviewed was that you know, especially if you have something like chronic fatigue syndrome, or you get Lyme disease, you get treated and you don't get better. I mean, medicine basically has very little to say to you in those cases, but those people are really, really sick, right? And so of course you turn to Google, your instinct is to survive. And yeah. one thing I would say is that the more we actually recognize these as problems and create centers for care, the, 
less misinformation will be out there, the more people will be able to get care. I mean, I think, look, Google's here to stay. I've talked to a lot of doctors about this. They hate it. My doctor, I have a great knee doctor because I had hurt my knee and she's like, I get calls in the middle of the night. And I'm like, yeah, but it's people's bodies. They're freaking out. Like you have yeah. to understand that reality. And I think the first step is to establish that openly and that trust and sort of figure out from there, where do you go? But you can't just be like, don't use Google, right? I interviewed the former head of the Permanente Federation. He was like, one of the problems is too that, you know, if you have one of these less well understood diseases and you're on Google and you're reading medical studies, yeah, there's a lot you don't understand about it, but you might actually end up knowing more than the doctor does about your condition because they're a GP, you know, keeping up with everything. And he said, and that's a really uncomfortable position for everyone because A, you might have a lot of misunderstanding of what you've read and B, the doctor wants to feel like the expert. And so his point was, we just have to get beyond that moment and figure yes. out how does, how does the doctor then say, okay, I'm not an expert in this. I'm going to help you find an expert who can communicate this better. Yes. I mean, we started the conversation talking about vulnerability and there's so much shame and shaming wrapped up in medical care or this feeling of powerlessness or impatience or feeling threatened, you know, by a well-informed patient or pushy patient. But that's the reality of getting good medical care. Unfortunately for most people is the insistence on asking questions. We need a new model where doctors can say, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know. And I feel you and I wish I knew and I will help you. We also need, you know, the less shaming of people around you know, their bodies. It's a totally different conversation, but it's like, I'm putting off my annual because I don't want to be weighed, right? Like there's so <laughs> many factors in medicine right. that are like deeply shamed. I also don't, I'm, I'm sure you have this experience. I don't want to go and be told on either end of the spectrum, don't do that or don't do that. Like as long as it's not harmful or, and it feels, you know, helpful. You know, I love yeah. acupuncture. I'm going to keep getting acupuncture. I right. love my OBGYN. Yeah, exactly. So, but there's that, like, there's always that disconnect that we need to, yeah. I think, bridge. Well, and we, we have, I think, as a kind of cultural habit, I'm just generalizing here, but it's part of what I try to get at in that chapter about integrative medicine is that we just, we have this habit of going to extremes, right? And I think temperamentally, and experientially, I'm someone who found, you know, great help from certain aspects of conventional medicine. I mean, antibiotics really saved my life as I knew it. Mm -hmm. But acupuncture was absolutely crucial to my well-being. I think it helped my health tremendously. I love it. <laughs> I'm Me too. Nice. If you have kids, you know, it's somewhere calm where you get to be like the, the child in the womb, right? And it really herbs and acupuncture really helped with things that traditional medicine couldn't help me with like endometriosis and period pain. Right. And so it just, to me, there's a logic to people seeking out answers in things like herbs and anyway, but we, we don't too often. These things are seen as being opposed as opposed to part of the same system of searching for genuine answers. One reason is that we don't have great systems for, evaluating alternative medicine, right? It's really hard if it's really personal, personalized, how do you study it in a kind of, you know, let's see, you know, randomized controlled trial, you can't really do that, right? But I think the solution here too, is not to just reflexively dismiss, but to try to carve out a kind of more authentic conversation about what really helps people who are chronically ill live their lives. You know, a model for this for me is palliative care, right? We didn't used yeah. to have palliative care. We used to just like throw medicine at people until they died. And basically it was a concept invented by various people, including someone I interview in my book named Susan Block, where they said, you know, if people are dying anyway, why don't we ask them what they really want from their last months? And that changed how we help people die and how we treat them. And I think we need a similar revolution in chronic illness care where we say, okay, we can't get rid of your illness or we don't know exactly what it is. How can we help you? What are your goals? How do you want to live? What's, what's the symptom that's the most troublesome? No one ever said that to me, any of those things. Yeah. You know? 
So that's part of what I'm hoping we can start talking about in this country. Yeah. No, and palliative care, you know, obviously hospice is part of palliative care, but palliative care is just such a much bigger and more important conversation about selfhood and, yeah, the qualities that matter. And people can work with palliative care for years. You know, it doesn't even have to happen. And it's not even an end of intervention. It, it's sort of what you're speaking to of we will never remove, we will never be without some of these symptoms, but let's figure out how to, how to eliminate or alleviate the suffering. Exactly. Yeah. You talk at the end about finding that so many people wanted to reassure you of the good things that this experience brought with it and the cultural narrative where that we, I I am completely, I, I, I'm guilty of this as well, of like, everything has a lesson and there's always an upside and a silver lining. This, you quote, unquote, a narrative in which sickness is bearable because it transforms the sufferer. What is your response to that? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, first of all, you know, I did write this book to try to wrest some meaning from my illness, right? So, so I, I certainly think that the impulse to cope and find meaning and and reframe is a really important one in many aspects of our lives. The specific point I really want to make here, though, is that we kind of exclusively do that, right? We don't, because we're not pausing socially, personally, to recognize the reality of these invisible illnesses. We're going right from kind of the silencing of the illness to the reassurance that it's all going to be okay. And I've done it too, absolutely, before I got sick and probably even since I got sick. There's this human impulse to make other people feel better. But the work I think we have to do here first on our own and as a culture is to stop and say, I'm so sorry, I see that you're suffering, right? We have this epidemic of long COVID hitting and we just need to stop before we're all arguing about masks and going back to work. We just have to stop and say, I'm so sorry that you're suffering. You got this virus and you just haven't gotten better and no one knows exactly what's wrong, right? It's really powerful to witness someone suffering. Also really hard to do, but I do think it's our moral and ethical obligation to to do that. And then let the conversation go from there where it might go. Yeah. What's your best advice for someone who is trying to find a diagnosis or in the middle of navigating? Yeah. I think the most important thing is to keep trying and to believe yourself, right? To believe in your own intuition, to trust yourself. I think I spent far too long dismissing my own symptoms because doctors said we can't find anything wrong. And I internalized the idea that something was wrong with me, not my body, right? my head, as it were. The other thing is that, you know, having gone through it for 20 years, I can say there are people out there who care about these illnesses, who can help you. There are centers, there are acupuncturists, there's all kinds of help. It's, so it's finding those people, which is really, really tough to do. And it's kind of like a marathon, right? And because it's a marathon, sometimes you have to pause and let yourself rest, right? You can't always, I couldn't always search for answers. There were times I just had to pause, try to get by. But yeah, the more you can keep trying until you find that real partner in your health, the, the better. Well, if you couldn't tell Megan O'Rourke is a beautiful writer and her book for anyone who finds themselves on a similar path or is curious about navigating the medical system is a really helpful guide and resource and I think anyone who finds themselves in this particular quandary which is unfortunately a lot of people and a lot of women it's a really helpful guide. But it also speaks to this much larger issue, which is this culture of care that's required for healing, the fact that we're all so connected, that empathy is essential and needs to be integrated rather than dismissed as not science. We need to find, help people feel the sense of wholeness and at least of feeling understood on their path to healing. Oh, 
As she writes, but to be ill in America today is to be brought up against the pathology of a culture that denies this fact. In the worst moments of my illness, I was alone because of the ways that we have allowed ourselves to believe that the self, rather than community, must do all the healing. And as we contemplate this pandemic, which will keep going, and long COVID, and all of these various epidemics, I think it's incumbent on all of us to recognize that even if we are not ourselves afflicted, it's our job to help others heal. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends who you think might like the show because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at LLS dot org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash students.